0: Your body is an animal, doesn't ask for much. A little music and a soft touch. Why don't you let it out to play? Your heart is in a birdcage, singing in your chest. You want to shut it up but give it a rest. You're going to die one day. Hey, everybody. I think when we uh, left this last time... <clears throat> I had just quit my high-paying job in Midtown Manhattan in the Diamond District thanks to the influence of uh, Catalina Montero Alvarez. Where are you now, Catalina Montero Alvarez? Wow, well, let's see. She was probably in her mid-30s, I would guess. <clears throat> and that was, what, the mid-80s? So what's that? So she's in her 60s now? Ah, Catalina, thank you. Um, Anyway, so what happened next? I went to my parents' house, uh, you know, quit my job, had all this money, had, um, I don't think I mentioned, I don't know if I mentioned in the last episode, this Russian guy that I met uh, who went into an apartment, not an apartment, an office in one of the buildings I was managing, he was a he's a funny little guy i mean these days uh, i may have mentioned that in the mid 80s you could buy your way out of the soviet union you know the world was still divided up into the the russians or the communists and the so-called free world the capitalist world you know it it occurs to me that a lot of people listening to this uh if you're in your 20s or maybe even in your early 30s the notion of of what it was like living in the 80s is as exotic to you as India, in a way. You know, the internet was a huge, huge change in the way it feels to be alive if you're living in, in the modern world. You know, if you're in a little village in Zimbabwe, I guess it doesn't matter as much. Um, or maybe it does because now everybody has phones there. But... In the days before cell phones and internet, email, all that, the world was a very different place and the Soviet Union, when the Soviet Union still existed, there was a very clear division of, you know, here and there, us and them. Anyway, this guy had bought his way out of the Soviet Union, uh, probably, you know, with his pockets full of diamonds, came to New York and wanted uh, to establish himself in the diamond business there, uh, and you really need to have uh, an office on 47th Street in order to do that. So anyway, he, he and I met, and he, um, I don't know what he saw in me, <laughs> but he decided that he was going to just work me till he got an office. And there were no offices, you know, but he, one day we were in my office, and he, um, you know, he came by like every week, just insistent. Always a good humor and a big smile on his face. And, uh, so he, he wanted to take me out to lunch and I knew he was trying to like bribe me or, you know, whatever, but there just were no offices and, and there were already people, you know, on a waiting list. And so I refused, 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 but he was a nice guy and and whatever. And after a while I was like, okay, look, we can go to lunch, but we'll go to this burger place on 48th street. So we went to the burger place and it was awkward and weird. Um, you know and i was in my three piece suit with a tie and you know the whole fucking shebang and uh i remember <laughs> i remember taking this uh bottle of ketchup and instead of like the, i don't know what i was thinking but i shook it like like i was um uh like i was flicking a whip you know like a back and forth not up and down and so it sort of i flicked it toward him and then toward me and then toward him and then toward me and when i flicked it toward myself the the top came off and i splattered the side of my face and neck with ketchup i mean it was an explosion of ketchup in this crowded midtown manhattan burger joint <clears throat> the whole restaurant and there was like a A beat of silence. Like everybody stopped talking. And then hilarity when they saw that I, you know, like, well, I don't know. It's not what they saw in me. They just all started laughing. And thank God the cap came off when it was going towards me and not towards him. Because if I had splattered him with ketchup, I'm not sure how that would have turned out. Um, But that ketchup, man, I was wearing uh, a dress shirt with a tie. And that ketchup was inside it got under my collar it was down <laughs> under my neck so it was it was a hell of a splatter anyway this guy eventually he um uh i don't think can can i get in trouble for saying this i don't think so hypothetically he um put a, a an envelope on my desk one day when he was leaving i didn't notice until after he was gone and hypothetically, in this envelope was a lot of $100 bills, which hypothetically he may have been trying to use to bribe me. And it just so happens that an office opened up about that time. And I, I, I told him, like, I, I, don't, I can't take this money. I called him and, you know, and he said, oh, you know, just I'll get it. I'll pick it up next time I'm there, whatever. Anyway, this is about the time I quit the job. And hypothetically, some of that money may have made it into my uh, travel funds. And when I went, uh, when I was leaving to go to India, I had, I made several mistakes. One was that I packed as if I were going to Alaska, right? You always, you always, generals fight the last war, right? And uh, you pack for the last place you went. So, I packed for India as if I were going camping in the middle of, uh, the tundra. I had sleeping bag, I had a tent, I had, uh, you know, water filter and I had all sorts of stuff. And you don't camp in India. (laughs) I didn't really understand that until I got there, but you just don't really do that. So, um, Anyway, so I packed up all this stuff, and then I decided uh, at the last minute that I really should cut back on weight a little bit, but instead of getting rid of the tent or the sleeping bag, I decided not to take my Walkman and cassette tapes, which turned out to be an interesting interesting because I thought well I'll listen to Indian music not really understanding how different Indian music is and and how hard it was going to be for me to enjoy Indian music so anyway I uh I went all around the United States saying goodbye to people before I left for Asia now this will sound weird to you listening to this um but in those days, I, I was going away for a couple of years at least. I didn't know when I would come back. And there was no way to stay in touch with people other than sending letters, uh, letters that could take a month to get there, uh, to get to the U.S. from India, right? And then and then what? If they were going to write back to me, they wouldn't know where to write because I didn't have an address, um in fact with the woman that i was corresponding with uh and with my parents what they had to do was i would send them a letter let's say it's the beginning of november i would send a letter to them okay i would con- i would calculate that it would get there at the end of november and then if they wrote back right away that's another month so then it would get to me around the end of december so that i had to figure out okay where am i going to be in mid-January. To give it like two weeks in case it's late or something, I don't want to miss it, right? So I have to calculate two and a half months from now, where am I going to be, and tell them in the letter, you can write to me in Varanasi or in Delhi or in Pushkar or in whatever place I thought I was going to be in two and a half months. I mean, these days you send an email from some tiny little village in Kerala and your friend gets it in half a second and writes back to you before you leave the Internet cafe. It's a completely different world. Um, or, or you're getting it on your goddamn phone. It's incredible. And I'm not saying it's better. OK, I'm, I'm, I'm not saying it's worse necessarily, but I am saying it's very, very different and changes the experience of travel dramatically Um, anyway so I went all around the U.S. saying goodbye to people uh, my my cousins my aunt and uncle various friends women that I was sort of chasing around whatever and I went to LA and then I flew out of LA to uh, stopped in Bangkok for a couple of nights which was confusing and weird and then to Delhi so I arrive in Delhi and I remember there was a guy on the flight from Bangkok to Delhi, an Israeli guy, that and we sat next to each other and he had traveled a lot in India. And I remember him saying, you know, that there are people who love India and there are people who just can't take India at all. Like nobody seems to be in the middle, you know. And I also remember him saying there's no way to prepare for India. Like you can't, you just can't imagine what it's like until you're there. And I think he was right about that. Um, So today I'm going to tell you a little story about an experience I had uh, upon arriving in India. Uh, This this is one of the first things that happened to me in India. So I went around, said goodbye to everybody, spent about a month traveling in the U.S., flew into India, landed in New Delhi late at night, I remember. And there there were the debris of the Diwali festival was all over the place. They, this is a festival where they set off fireworks everywhere. So there was that sort of smell of fireworks and, uh, you know, sp- burned gunpowder and paper, shredded paper everywhere because they blow up and leave the paper everywhere. But I hardly noticed it because everything was so amazing. The damp olfactory chaos ranging from curry to cow shit this sleeping cities of people lined up along the sidewalks and roadsides i remember coming in from the airport in a taxi and people were sleeping their heads were like you know a couple of feet from where the wheels of this taxi were running down the road people slept on the roads because they stayed warm at night um it was just incredible uh, ox carts, cows, elephants, camels walking through the streets, between the trucks, the bicycles, pedestrians, unbelievable. And then when the sun came up the next day, the colors were blowing my mind. I'd never seen yellow or yellow or red or reds, not even when I was stoned out of my mind. It was just overwhelming and uh, still overwhelms me in memory. The only still space in this marvelous mess, the eye of my personal Indian cyclone was a small dark room I'd rented in a nondescript guest house near the old Delhi train station. I'd chosen it randomly. There were thousands just like it, offering a dozen or so rooms with leaking, rusty showers. I remember this one didn't even really have a shower. It just had a pipe sticking out of the wall (laughs) you'd like turn the the faucet and water would come out of that pipe um locks on the doors that you could have picked with your fingernail i mean locks that look more like toy locks than actual locks uh and it had a small balcony overlooking the street i was probably i was paying a couple bucks a night for the room whatever uh cheap and um someone had warned me to be really careful about uh, thieves that would sneak into your room when you were sleeping and go through your stuff, that they were really, uh, you had to be very careful about that. And I had decided that I was going to take most of my money in cash because I had read somewhere that you could get a better exchange rate on... uh, $100 bills, and then you could on traveler's checks. So to maximize my money, I was carrying probably about $10,000 in cash, uh, and then, uh, or maybe more, I think about it's about $14,000 in cash, and then uh, a couple thousand more in traveler's checks. I had an American Express card and my passport and a money belt. And which I wore under my pants, Um, and at night, in order to make sure everything that there was no way anyone could steal my my money and passport, I kept it under my pillow in bed because I thought there's no way someone's going to get in here. Even if I'm dead asleep, they're not going to get their hand under my pillow without me waking up. You know. So about a week into this trip, into my stay in Delhi, I bought a ticket to go up to Jammu and Kashmir, specifically to a place called Srinagar, which is a a lake in the Himalayas. It was the summer capital when the British ruled India. They used to go up there in the summers. And uh, actually, I don't know if it was the capital. I think... um, I think there was a, uh, another place that was the political capital but Srinagar was where uh the the wealthy british would get away for the summer because it was cool high altitude there's this beautiful lake called Dal Lake um where they had these uh these houseboats and uh I'll talk about Dal Lake later some amazing things happened up there in Srinagar um anyway so I bought this ticket to go up there and it's like a 2 or 3 day train ride. It's it's a long train ride. It goes up through um the part of the country where the Sikhs live, or the Punjab. And in those days there was there were Sikhs all over India of course, but the Punjab is the sort of center of Sikh culture. Amritsar um, I think is the the main city there. Uh, where the Golden Temple is. And these days, this was shortly after um, the president of India had been assassinated by her Sikh bodyguards, in fact. And um, so there was war brewing. There was a major conflict between the Sikh people and, uh, and the sort of dominant cultural group in India, the Hindus, and... So you needed special permission to pass through Punjab, even on the train. And, you know, you had to agree you would not get off the train and you'd get a special stamp in your passport and all that. Now you can, you can go to the Punjab, but now you can't go to Kashmir, which is where I was headed, which at that point was open, because in Kashmir, the population is mostly Muslim. And so there's a conflict there. Um... Anyway, so I'd been staying in this place for about a week in this guest house for about a week. It was a little small guest house, probably 15, maybe 20 rooms. You know, there are hundreds and maybe thousands of them, just like it in Old Delhi. And um, so I, I had this train ticket, and the train left really early in the morning, so I woke up. I you know, I packed up everything the night before. Set my alarm. Uh, woke up five o'clock in the morning or whatever it was. Brushed my teeth. You know, maybe took a shower and uh, got got dressed. Grabbed my backpack and everything and left. Checked out of the the place. Went to the train station. And I I got there early. and I hadn't taken a train in India yet, so I had no idea what, how this was going to work. You know, how I was going to find my car, my space. You know, it's chaos everywhere. So um, I got there uh, probably an hour early and I was, and it was already hot. It's like 6.30 in the morning and it's already hot. And I I remember I'd gotten a a chai and I remember sort of squatting down next to my backpack and drinking this chai and I felt a bead of sweat run down my spine. And I reached around to to, uh, wipe the sweat from the small of my back, and I realized my money belt wasn't there. I didn't have my money belt. I'd left it under the pillow. This is a week into my round-the-world, don't-know-when-I'll-see-you-again, taking all the money in cash trip. So I jumped up, grabbed my backpack, and ran with this 60-pound backpack on my back through the chaotic streets of Old Delhi back to the guest house. I ran up uh, through the the entrance area there, and the manager was uh, at the desk. I ran right past him. Uh, I went up to the door, banged on the door. Uh, nobody, I could hear people were in there, but they they wouldn't answer me, wouldn't open the door. I went back down to the lobby where the manager, who was a Sikh, um, was waiting for me. And uh, for those of you who don't know, you the Sikhs always wear a turban. Uh, They don't cut their hair, so the beard is sort of curled up into the turban often. They're known um, in India for being um, great warriors and very good businessmen uh, and um, now I, I know honorable people. Anyway... So I get, I, I go down now I'm sweating, I'm shaking, I'm completely freaked out as you can imagine. And I I get down to the lobby and the guy's looking at me, you know, kind of concerned. He says, what's, what's happening? I said, I need to get in, into my room. I left something in my room. He said, I'm afraid the, the room's already been rented to another client. What did you leave? I said, I left some papers. Uh, he said, well, what sort of papers? My passport. I left my passport in the room. Now this guy was older than me, maybe around 40 or so. I can remember his beard curled up into the tight turban Sikh all men wear. I knew nothing at this point about Sikhs other than that they had a reputation for being good, honest businessmen, as I'd said, um, but they also were having problems in India. So because of the the Sikh bodyguards had killed Indira Gandhi, who was the president. Um. Anyway, uh, this Sikh hotel manager was the the first Sikh I'd ever spoken to. Actually, personally, he said, uh, "Oh my, a passport is important, sir. Did you leave anything else in the room?" It was at this point that I started to sense I was being tested. Maybe not tested necessarily by him. Maybe I was being tested by the universe. I don't know. But I felt, you you ever get that feeling where suddenly the cameras are on you? Not real cameras, but the attention. The attention of the universe. The the reality is watching what are you going to do now? This is a moment. This is a make or break. This is a do or die. This is one of those moments where who you really are is going to be determined. Determined or maybe expressed. Maybe it's the same thing. Anyway, I remember his eyes, which... I felt, I, 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 it was, I remember his eyes and there was a touch of amusement in them. And maybe that's what keyed me into the sense of testing. I didn't sense any cruelty, but, but he found something amusing about the situation. And I remember that they were intelligent eyes. And so sort of instinctively, I just decided there's no point in lying or making any demands or trying to bluff anything or whatever. My fate was out of my hands. Well, what could I do? I can't call the Indian police and tell them I abandoned 12000 or $14,000 cash <laughs> in my fucking $2 a night room, Right. So I just um, sort of, you know, rolled over like a puppy and said, uh, I left money in the room. He said, How much money? And I said, All my money, about $15,000. He said, $15,000? That's a lot of money, sir. He hesitated. Then he leaned down, reached under the counter, and handed me my money belt. I unzipped it and looked inside. I didn't count the money, but the stack of hundreds looked as thick as it had been the day before. When I counted it later, nothing was missing. He said to me, do you understand how much money this is in India, sir? One could buy this hotel and several others like it with this. Yes, I said, I understand. I can't believe I did this. He said, the boy who cleans the rooms found your possessions. He brought this to me. This boy earns about $10 in a month's time. So I pulled out a few hundred dollar bills and I said, please give these to the boy with my thanks. And he said, oh no, sir, that would insult him. I said, then what can I do? He said, give me 300 rupees, which I think was about $15 then, and I'll have a party here with the other employees to honor him for his noble actions. That will be the thing to do. So I gave him what he asked for, and uh, he said, okay, now go catch your train before you miss it, and please be more careful with your possessions. I shook his hand, I thanked him, and I ran back to the train station where I eventually found my place on the train and you can imagine how that felt <laughs> to sit on the train after that experience as the train pulled out and i realized what had just happened which is in in a way that that man had just saved my life the life i've i now know i've had the life i was trying to have then Ultimately, that stack of hundred dollar bills took me through India, Nepal, Thailand, Malaysia, Indonesia, Singapore, Greece, France, Holland, Germany, Czechoslovakia, and back to New York. Along the way I came to see myself and at least imagined that others saw me as a, a guy who had the wherewithal to step into the unknown and keep his balance, a savvy traveler, an experienced adventurer, a guy who could handle any situation. That became a central thread in my life story and my identity. Now, 30 years later, I'm comforted and protected and enriched by that self-image. That's why you're listening to me now, right? I consider this my own. It's something I earned. It's an aspect of my life that can never be taken away from me. These years of adventure, this... You know, willingness to confront risk and all that kind of stuff. But the truth is that this life that I'm so proud of was in many ways given to me by that man whose name I never asked on a hot November morning in 1986.